Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Dr. Warren McKenzie, who is the founder and managing director of HB11 Energy, a company that focuses on nuclear fusion. He's also involved with the University of New South Wales School of Materials, Science and Engineering. Warren, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about what HB11 is about. So it's uh, nuclear fusion. Um, What particular uh, element are you looking at? So we were the first of the commercial laser fusion companies to become established. So what that means is we're trying to ignite a fusion reaction or a fusion burn using a high power laser. Uh, We're also slightly different to a lot of the other approaches to, to... uh, to fusion in that we're, our fuels are different. We're using boron as the main fuel rather than deuterium and tritium. Uh, and this really evolved out of a Professor Heinrich Horer, uh, an old professor from the University of New South Wales, who was one of the pioneers in the field, subsequent, you know, following on from one of the real pioneers of fusion generally, uh, Sir Mark Oliphant, who discovered fusion, uh, you know, I think subsequently went on to become the governor of, of Adelaide. So Australia has actually a bit of a history in uh, the development of the, the fusion space, hasn't it? Absolutely. Uh, so some water was poured on on that field, scientific fields, uh, probably in around about 2000 or 1999 where the nuclear ban came in. So there's a bunch of old guys still around who are still experts in the field. Not so many young ones coming through, but I think that'll probably change after the, the recent results a bit that have been announced. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that. We saw that a number of scientists from the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory came out with a study that said for the very first time they had achieved net uh, gain energy with uh, nuclear fusion. What should we make of that? How important is that? It's very important. Uh, one of my favourite comics that I've seen recently is has a bunch of cavemen rubbing some sticks together and they say... This fire burn is always thirty is thirty years away and always will, will be, mate. You just can't rub sticks together fast enough. Yeah. So essentially, we've discovered fire or a burn, uh, not with regular fire, but with a nuclear fusion reaction, and that absolutely will change the face of energy forever. Most importantly, clean energy in a time where you know awareness about climate change is and and the need for a new energy source is very very significant. We did an interview uh, a while ago where I think you said that at that time we needed to have uh, reaction times that were 10 
10,000 times higher than we had at that particular moment to, to reach uh, a net energy gain. Um, how has that changed so quickly? Because it's only been, you know, uh, probably two years ago, three years ago that we spoke about that. Rewinding about a, a year ago, the National Ignition Facility with their deuterium tritium laser fusion, uh, I'm not sure of the exact figure, but they needed probably about a thousand times more reactions to get to net energy gain. From our own experiments, uh, we needed 10,000 10, times more more reaction rate. So it's you know we're not it's it's not exactly comparing apples with apples. As far as the HP11 project has gone, I mean we we've published the the results and and become the first fusion company to demonstrate any fusion, which was hugely significant. But the significance of the NIF result, uh, there's a lot of overlap with what we do. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they what's significant is they've achieved a burn. Now a year ago they got their first signatures of a burn. So what that means is rather than just, uh, you know, trying to get a little bit of a spark and trying to create a fire, they got enough of a reaction gain increase to know that the conditions that they were trying to achieve to create a burn had been achieved. Uh, essentially, they knew, you know, that that was basically the first steps on almost a sure path towards net energy gain. And and essentially what's happened last week is with a few more successful experiments, they've sailed past that, that point, which is a huge milestone, where for the first time they've got more energy out than energy in. But the significant point of the result is that they've achieved a burn. So going back to rubbing sticks together to create to create fire, yes, they've created the first little fire, but we can we can be sure that the next results in the 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 years to come are going to make massive massive increases on that net energy gain well beyond uh, 1.5 i think is what they achieved so 50% more energy out than they put in so what is exactly happening during that burn is that when they reach high enough temperature to to get the reaction start i might answer that question with stars essentially they're creating a mini star so most of the energy in the universe ultimately comes from the sun. The sun is a star, uh, and most of that energy comes from, again, the deuterium-tritium fusion reaction. Now, the very nice thing about stars is they already have a fusion reaction started, so it stays hot, but they also have an enormous amount of gravity compressing things. So with the combination of compression and temperatures well into the millions of degrees, they get a sustained burn. Now, essentially, the way that this was replicated in Lawrence Livermore National Lab is they have a very small sun, you know, millimeter, less than a millimeter in size, and they shoot 192 lasers at it. So these lasers come from a lot of different directions, and they do two things. The first thing that they do is they heat the fuel. The second thing that they do is on the very outer skin of the fuel, spherical fuel pellet, it explodes. So some of that explodes outwards. But conservation of momentum, some of that explodes inwards. And what explodes inwards compresses and essentially produces the other condition for fusion, that high level of compression. So collectively with these lasers, they've met the conditions that have been able to replicate not just fusion, but a fusion burn, which has given them the high reaction rates. Ultimately, this this means we want to generate clean energy. Now, most of the time when some of these milestones are being achieved, you immediately get a whole bunch of negative criticism that, as you said, we'll, we'll always be 30 years away from nuclear fusion. What is your take on it? How important of a step is this in getting to actually the final goal of, of energy, clean energy? Well, I mean, the similar to Tokamak's, the other approach to, to generating fusion, which are 
literally the most complicated machines in the world. The lasers uh, at the National Ignition Facility, which I was had the privilege of visiting a, about a month ago, are also inc- incredibly complicated machines. The way that they have demonstrated fusion is not a path to generating clean energy. It's proven the science, which will lead to subsequent advances across many areas of technology, which will see it happen. So it's it's quite a long path. Uh, you know, some of the practical challenges, just to, to illustrate a little bit. Firstly, the amount of energy that goes into the lasers is, uh, you know, the lasers that they use is is probably more than 100 times more than actually came out of the laser. Um, the fuels that they use, tritium, is a radioactive material, needs special handling, has very, you know, has environmental hazards, and they also do have some short-lived radioactive waste, you know, better than the, the long-lived radioactive waste from, from fission power plants. Um, they also need to be able to inject a fuel pellet and pulse uh, a, a laser target several times per second. Right now, I think the National Ignition Facility does one or a few per day at most. So essentially, there's a lot of technologies around the edges which need to be improved. But what we can guarantee now, the fact that laser fusion has been demonstrated as very much possible, you know, the, the very, very scientific proof of concept has been proven, those technology areas are going to receive a lot of investment, a lot of attention, and new industries are going to be born around that. It's those new industries that will reach net energy gain in a practical sense, not just the scientific sense, and see clean energy be deployed uh, around the world. So is this a matter where, um, you know, the scientists have proven the science, now it's up to the engineers to make it uh, efficient and possible? So in short, yes. So uh, there are many scientific questions that still need to be answered, but absolutely it's going to be an army of engineers uh, building new industries to, to solve a lot of the challenges that remain. So to illustrate with HB11, for example, we have scientific challenges. We haven't got to that point of burn, but we know that boron is an abundant material. It's not radioactive. Um, the fuel pellets that we produce, we're not trying to keep them at cryogenic temperatures, which you need uh, to be able to make one of these spheres to to create the mini star. Um, you know, it's a, that's a it's a lot easier to make a perfectly sphere uh, target when when you know you you don't need liquid helium. And it's not a radioactive material that needs to be contained. Yeah. So boron is uh, the B in the HB11, uh, I believe. So you, Correct. What's the, what's the primary choice to choose that material? Because um, it, it it's basically doesn't have the uh, nuclear waste that is associated with, uh, with fission. So, yes. Uh, in short, uh, we have a much engin- much easier engineering pathway moving forward. Because, because of a few factors. The first one is the hydrogen boron 11 reaction, which is the key reaction that we're looking for. As I mentioned, it doesn't have radioactive fuels. It also doesn't produce radioactive waste. So the products of the reaction are alpha particles. Alpha particles are helium without electrons, and they're not radioactive. Because we're not producing any other high-energy particles, so most other nuclear reactions will produce high-energy neutrons, they go through walls, so they need containing, and they're essentially what, what is harmful to humans. But more than that, anything that they touch can become radioactive and then becomes radioactive waste. So a lot of the downside, not just of fusion, but nuclear energy in general, can be bypassed using this hydrogen boron reaction. So we absolutely have more science to do. 
But if we can get to the point where the National Edition facility got to last week, the engineering pathway is is not going to be uh, nearly as long or as challenging uh, as the path that they face. Now, part of the reason that they were able to achieve this is um, the use of high-powered lasers. Yep. Um, is, is that sort of what is driving this forward as well? Because I think uh, last time we spoke, you mentioned that sort of maybe five, ten years ago, you, you couldn't quite do this yet. Yep. It was only a concept. But now we've sort of proven that concept. H- how important are lasers in this uh, development? They're absolutely the key to making this happen, as uh, as they are the key to hydrogen boron fusion and some of the early results on what we were founded by. So in short, the, the challenge with fusion generally has been to ignite the reaction you need to put a lot of energy into a fuel. Now, the 2018 Nobel Prize in Physics was won by Nobel uh, by, by Donna Strickland uh, and Gerard Maru for coming up with a technique of being able to compress a laser pulse. So if you imagine, you know, rather than a headlight in a car, you, you compress a whole bunch of energy that, that you might leave the headlight on for a few seconds into a very, very short uh, flash for a very, very short amount of time. So essentially that acts as a very big hammer um, of light that can be forced through a very, very small area in a very, very short amount of time. That creates some of the conditions that allow fusion to happen. So they're absolutely the key. Um, they they are very new. They've opened up the field of high energy density physics, which has enabled this to be studied. And also within that science, the shortest path to actually create a fusion burn uh, and other applications have, have opened up. So I think the, the amount of energy um, that these lasers use is phenomenally large. Um, how, how is that achieved? How is it made possible to, to make it practical? Because I think some of these lasers have the equivalent of like entire country's electricity nets. Yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the amount of the power that you have for a very, very short amount of time is well into the petawatts. 10 petawatts and, and some are trying for 100 petawatts. Essentially what we can what we can do very, very well is take a laser pulse that might be microseconds in, in length. We compress it down to nanoseconds. So the, the lasers at Livermore, uh, they are around about a nanosecond in length. Um, for our applications, we need a little bit more compression where we get down to a pico or even a femtosecond or tens of femtoseconds to be able to achieve. So when you squash that pulse of light, the total amount of energy, the peak of that goes very, very high. Um, that's what we need. So collectively, the, the pulse at the National Ignition Facility was you know, in, in the order of megajoules um, delivered o- over a nanosecond. You know, at our pulses, we're looking at kilojoules uh, over, the, over, the, over the course of uh, picoseconds. Yeah. I also read that these lasers can be used to actually reduce the half-life of nuclear waste. How, how does that work? Sure. So another very exciting application. It's not uh, effectively demonstrated yet, although it has a, you know, people have done scientific proof of principles. But going back to some of the discoveries in science relating to these high-energy density physics enabled by lasers is essentially you can produce lots of uh, products of, of nuclear reactions. So high energy particles, you know, in our case, we use protons to make the proton or the hydrogen boron fusion reaction works. And then there's, there's also gamma radiation, uh, lots of other different types of radiation, which uh, essentially are, pro- are products of nuclear reactions. Those particles can produce other nuclear reactions. Essentially what 
what these groups have done in the literature at least have shown that the reaction products which or the, the products of the laser high energy laser pulses can initiate other nuclear reactions which will which will basically transmute a material with a half-life of maybe hundreds of thousands of years to ones of half-life of tens of years and, and I think in in one case I've even seen half-life of 30 minutes wow wow that's a- so I, I think that there's again there's a, a long path to that uh, becoming becoming a reality because there's a lot of energy that needs to, to be used to transmute these these materials but absolutely um, in the course of, of years, certainly decades, uh, there will be a method that's been enabled by these lasers to reduce the, the half-life of um, fission radioactive waste, which has half-lives of hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. So these lasers are pretty important in the whole uh, development of, of the nuclear space. And I believe um, HB11 is also in a coalition to basically try to get some momentum of uh, making these lasers here in Australia or having a facility there. Can you tell me a little bit about how this coalition came to be? Yeah, sure. So in short, the lasers that are available today really are built for laboratories. So you can do a nice experiment with a nice laser pulse. You might need to leave it a few hours to charge up or cool down. I mentioned that there's been a a couple of applications, transmutation of radioactive waste. There is also the generation of other radioactive isotopes, for instance, for, for medicine. Um, There's also advanced imaging capability. So there's a lot of new applications that have very, very recently been proven um, that have been enabled by these high-powered lasers. What there isn't right now is an industry that produces lasers not for laboratory applications. So no one is producing these lasers for any specific application. Now, in HB11's case, for instance, rather than having a laser that pulses maybe you know, a couple of times per day and then needs to cool down, we'd absolutely need a laser that can pulse 10 or 100 times per second continuously 24-7. Current lasers absolutely can't do that. So with these new applications, we've, we as a group have recognized that there is a very, very nice chance to establish a new industry for these high-power lasers that are built for purpose. So not one-off demonstrations that, that, that are used to demonstrate science, but but designed for, for real applications and ultimately that, that will lead to scale and, and the realisation of many of these applications. So in science, Australia does have a lot of very significant expertise in laser science and engineering. So many of those parties came to the table. Uh, we also had some of the, the veterans of the world. So Talus, one of the, the current uh, manufacturers of, of lasers, if you want to buy a petawatt laser off the shelf, you, you call Talus in France and, and they will give you a very healthy quote. I imagine so. And also uh, the Institute um, for, for Laser Engineering at the University of Osaka, who really are the long-term veterans of high-power laser technology. Um, so they've essentially been, been looking at high-power laser research for 50 years, which is not long after the discovery of the laser in the first place. So essentially, as a group, we've realized that, hey, there's this big opportunity so essentially, we're starting the discussion on how Australia can capitalise on that. Um, but, you know, a key piece of, of what we would need to do is actually get the first petawatt laser in Australia. There are no petawatt lasers in the Southern Hemisphere. And to have one in Australia, particularly with the really great expertise that we have, would uh, be hugely valuable, not just to science, but to, you know, the, the growth of a new industry. So most of our listeners are, are super funds, asset owners, investors. Um, 
when you look at sort of through an investment lens at this space, do you think that the the high intensity laser industry is is sort of the key development there that that will require investment, but also generate most of the opportunities, or are there other areas that are related to the generation of energy through nuclear fission that that we're likely to see come up in an, in the economy. What will drive it in the immediate future, like many new evolving technologies in the world, is defence. So the the in defence, uh, without going into too many details, uh, is one of the few countermeasures uh, that, that that are available for drone swarms, for instance, or even even long range missiles. Um, and I think directed energy has been recognised as a very significant strategic direction for for defence in Australia, albeit uh, you know that with a lot of interest, but you know no no yet capabilities that have been re- realised yet that can really be be deployed. So that is absolutely a driving force. Right next to those, there is laser fusion, which no doubt will get a huge boost. There is no doubt going to be a lot of money uh, flowing into into laser fusion and the industry around it. As well as, like I mentioned, uh, imaging, more cost-effective production of radioisotopes. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that defense element because I read that the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory that achieved this um, um, net gain, it's, it's actually a defense organization. How do you read that? Is that just where all the innovation takes place in, in this nuclear, uh, uh, with nuclear focus? Or should we be more concerned about the fact that it comes from an, a defence-type institution? It's no secret that Lawrence Livermore is a defence lab. Uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab, Los Alamos National Lab, really have been the pioneers of, of uh, nuclear weapons over the years. Um, you know, they, they really are the, the home to uh, the, the, the Manhattan Project and, and the development since then. Unfortunately, uh, nuclear fission and fusion weapons are mature technologies <laughs> um there are a lot of these bombs around and and one of the big uh, objectives of these labs now is not necessarily the development of those, those weapons but actually the maintenance of the stockpiles so make no doubt about it lawrence livermore national lab is is absolutely maintenance for the nuclear weapons arsenal of of the u.s and results like this as well as being scientifically very very valuable for clean energy are a signal to the world that the u.s is still the leaders in nuclear weapons <laughs> It's, you know, I, I wouldn't see it as, as absolutely anything to worry about. Nothing has changed. But I, I, what I would hope is that, you know, for the, for the infinite money that's available to these labs, a little bit more interest is actually put on green energy than, than uh, making sure the world uh, is a little bit scared of the US if they're going, <laughs> and they're given their nuclear stockpile. Yes. So I think that was also one of the other benefits of, of using a boron in this uh, uh, process as well, that... Um, from boron, you can't really make a bomb. Correct. Uh, there are many reasons why nuclear fusion is always thirty years away, and one of those reasons is there's very, very few people who can use tritium because it's the fuel that's used uh, in the hydrogen bomb. Now, admittedly, you also need a fission bomb to actually ignite the hydrogen bomb. So it's you know you certainly can't do this in your backyard. But there are no diplomatic hurdles, I guess, or, or regulatory hurdles that will. Uh, prevent us from doing uh, experiments. So going back to the point about HB11 becoming the first private fusion company to demonstrate fusion, yes, of course that is because we're amazing scientists and engineers and know how to do good experiments, but it also helps a lot that we we don't have to do it uh, 
in the environment of a national lab that have much bigger priorities than clean energy. So talking about clean energy, um, right after this experiment was announced, uh, I think there were some critics that said, well, we shouldn't rely on nuclear fission to solve uh, climate change. What do you think is the role, once this has been developed, of of nuclear fission um, as, as a clean energy? A lot of the debate that I've seen that suggested that is looking at the the, the 2030 uh, milestones. Absolutely, nuclear fusion is not going to be widely deployed and, and representing a very big chunk of the energy grid by, by 2030. But the bigger picture is climate change is not going to be solved by 2030. It's not going to be solved by 2050. It's not going to be solved by the next century. In the long term... Even if you consider all of the technologies that are available today, the really the only long-term energy source is actually fusion. You know, the, the uranium for fission is is limited. Some of the resources for clean energy, solar cells, uh, are, are limited. They're not going to last forever. Um, even if we look at deuterium-tritium fusion, tritium needs to be bred from lithium. Lithium is limited. Uh, you know, to you know, there may be a hundred years worth of resources. So. In the long run, fusion generally, but in particular hydrogen boron fusion, is one of the few energy sources that does have the capacity to, to last uh, thousands of years. Now, we we hope and I think the policy settings and, and investment plans around the world are looking to, to fit a, a time frame whereby they will be deployed by 2050. And I think that is 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 very, very reasonable, not too ambitious to be completely outrageous. But, you know, I, my, my response to most people to say that this is not going to help with climate change, no, it's not going to help with climate change in 2030, but climate change is going to be a long, long way from solved by 2030. So 2050, that's, that's less than 30 years. So you think we, we can see some uh, energy generated by nuclear fission by then? Definitely. Okay. So still within our lifetimes then? Uh. Still, still within our lifetimes. And I think, you know, one of my, one of my uh, again, criticisms of, you know, Fusion is always is thirty years away and always will be. There's those regulations, um, which literally stop people. And I guess that some of the conversations that we had at the National Ignition Facility about a month ago was, you know, right now there's about eighty shots that are de- dedicated to, you know, laser fusion for energy generation. The rest of them are, are for stockpile maintenance. With eighty shots in the world where you can actually use tritium on the best lasers in the world, you know, there's really limited. You know, the world's really limited in the amount of research that they can do. If the amount of interest was put on laser fusion that was given to the, uh, the, the development of the COVID vaccines, this will be solved in, in years, certainly within a decade. Right, right. So some of the obstacles are, are we need to change the rules around uh, nuclear research in Australia. Uh, we need to get some lasers. Um, what else are sort of things that can accelerate this development? Well, I think the the announcement and the excitement around fusion uh, is is certainly going to change change the the public opinion. Um, that public with that public opinion certainly come you know brings support from uh, certainly government, but but also the investment community. I really think that's that's going to change, or it has already started to change. We've seen uh, I think around eight billion dollars has been spent on f- private fusion companies in the last couple of years. Uh, internationally, of which half of about half of that is in the last two years, um, you know there is absolutely a race to to 
you know, a, a race amongst private fusion companies to actually get to the point of, of, of fusion energy production. So that interest generally probably is the, the third piece. Um, but in Australia, the other really obvious hurdle, as well as building a laser industry and the laser is actually lifting the nuclear ban. There is a lot that we can't do with the nuclear ban in Australia. Yep. And when, when you consider that there are nuclear reactions that don't have radiation, like the hydrogen boron reaction that, that don't produce radiation, don't produce radioactive waste. You know, it's a you know just an unnecessary impediment. Yeah. Now, I thought it was interesting to to read as well that there are currently a number of high intensity lasers being built, and one of them was in Shanghai, the uh, super intense ultrafast laser facility, which has plans to build a a hundred petawatt laser by 2025 called the Station of Extreme Light. There's a couple of fantastic terms in there. And apart from sort of the application to nuclear fusion, they claim that it might be powerful enough to produce antimatter directly from the vacuum of space. Is, is that really possible? No, it's, it's true. This is up there with discovering the Higgs boson, discovering gravitational waves. It's a scientific feat, that, that a scientific target. Uh, that, that is that, that is that is on the wall that you know will be a, a pinup for any nation to be able to achieve. So just to to buckle up a little bit because we'll dive into physics here, breaking the vacuum. So if we consider that light is a wave, um, we know waves have to travel through some medium. You know, if there's no water in you know in in, in the ocean, you can't surf. So if we consider out in the galaxy where there's a vacuum, where, you know, you consider that there is nothing, that's not actually the case. There is something there which light can travel through. Now, what theoretical physics has, has anticipated that that material or that, that, that matter that, that light travels through can be broken down into subatomic particles. A number has been put on, on that. Uh, that limit essentially where light, where space itself uh, breaks down uh, in the presence of a very, very intense power of, of light. And that's essentially what, the, what this facility in Shanghai is trying to do, essentially break the vacuum. Now, what they expect that these very, very high intensities and energies of light will produce is essentially break the vacuum down into a positron and an electron, for a very very short amount of time, and that's going to give us some really really nice insights into into um, subatomic physics and the nature of the universe at large. So now that this uh, is on the agenda to being built, do you think that that will also make other countries take notice and think, well, if China is building this really uh, big laser, maybe we should also spend some time looking in this space? Absolutely. You know, I, I think. You know, like like the Higgs boson and, and gravitational waves. You know, there is the the question of what other downstream technologies which are going to be produced, and that currently isn't clear. I think what probably is a bigger question is who is going to be the champion of the world at fusion. You know, right now we're seeing particularly the Arab nations who are the champions of the world of the current unlimited energy source of oil. Australia is certainly doing well out of coal. The the wealthy countries of the future will be defined by their ability. To produce energy. So if, you know, right now Australia and its its allies, the, the US and the UK are some of the best in fusion in the world and, and, you know, certainly from the NIF result of winning that race. But, you know, China knows how to do science now as well and they, they have some very, very big backers behind them. So I guess to, to put the question sort of away from breaking the vacuum and, and back into fusion, 
uh, China could win the fusion race. And, you know, while, you know, scientifically we wish them luck, uh, from the national security perspective, people will have different opinions if, if you know, China do become the, the nation that leads the world energy of the future. One thing that I will add there, though, as well, is uh, about the solar industry. Australia invented 90% of the technology that's in the solar cells that are on our roofs. That technology is being commercialized by China. Again, good luck to them for their industrial development. We wouldn't have the solar cells that we have today. Uh, but it's a point that really should be reflected on, particularly amongst the investment community, because back in the early 2000s, silicon solar cells are a bit of a silly thing to invest in. Right. We have to make sure that we don't have a deja vu of that experience with uh, nuclear fusion. So what's, what's on the agenda for HB11? If you look at sort of the next coming uh, couple of years, what, what is sort of your priorities there? Well, I mean, we still we have our scientific program where we're looking to basically optimize the target design. The target design essentially is is uh, exactly what what laser or lasers that we need, uh, what fuel that we need, what the makeup of the fuel is, what the composition is to maximize the amount of fusion energy generation. That's really the focus of our our greater science program. I think, particularly with these new results, and as reflected by uh, the 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 uh, coalition that we put together to establish a laser industry in Australia, we'll also be looking down the path of, of essentially getting involved in the supply chain of critical components that are going to be needed for, for lasers that will drive fusion of the future. As well as that, we're trying to turn ourselves into a, into a, uh, a world-class company. Um, we, we've seen in the magnetic confinement fusion space a few multi-billion dollar investments pump into that, which, which gives the, the field a huge, huge lift. We expect similar will happen in the next couple of years in laser fusion. Uh, we want to build ourselves into a company that you know, would, would be in a position to, to be on the receiving end of that, that kind of investment uh, in the future. Yeah, yeah. So are you, uh, as a company, then still restricted as well by the ban on, on nuclear uh, projects? Well, we don't have a petawatt laser in Australia. Um, most of our experimental program or most of our experiments need to be done offshore. So we've done two experiments this year. We've got one, one to go at the University of Osaka, for instance. We have to do our experiments offshore. Now, we're not producing any nasty particles so we don't really have to worry so much about about regulations even around those in other countries um, but essentially right now it's not limiting us um, in the future if we were to build a prototype reactor if that nuclear ban wasn't wasn't lifted you know we, we might have to make some hard decisions about where a prototype would be built yeah 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 well it sounds there's uh, plenty to do uh, for you going forward but uh, thank you very much for your time on this podcast it was a very interesting subject thank you for having me you're welcome Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.